Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. My next guest is the composer of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Enough said. The man, the legend, the composer who, who made me want to get into film music and TV music, Jeremy Zuckerman. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. That's so sweet. For sure. Wow. I used to read, there must have been some like interview online with you and Ben talking about getting Avatar The Last Airbender. And I was like, whoa, there's people who do this? Oh, wow. That's cool. Like it hadn't occurred to you, the whole business of scoring yet? No, I mean, I think I'd, I'd known about, or I must have known who John Williams was. So I must have, I think I was like 10, 11 probably just saw Star Wars for the first time, like in the last year. And then I might have known who Hans Zimmer was, but it just never occurred to me like, oh, like you don't need to be like a, one of those types of people to, to do this. Right. It's funny because, yeah, I mean, you were young. It's, it's crazy. Like, it doesn't feel like I've been doing this that long, but I have. I remember being like, Ben and I always make jokes because we were like the young punks on Avatar. Like we were actually called young punks by an executive. Like angrily, <laughs> not like it, not like endearingly. And so we like love that. We were like, yeah, that's like our badge. You know, we're like young punks. And so like now Ben and I like joke around about that. We're like, we're not young punks anymore, are we? <laughs> like, nope. Well, you two must have been like the youngest people on the team. Um, no, no, actually, no. Like Brian and Mike were, Brian, Brian's like a year younger than I am, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I think Brian's a year younger and Mike's like a year older than I am. And Ben's Ben's like I don't know six years younger or something. So Ben was probably the youngest person, at least on the like the the sort of immediate filmmaker crew. Obviously, there were all kinds of animators and other you know storyboard artists and all kinds of jobs that people were doing. And it was a big you know production requires a lot of people. But yeah, I guess like I think Ben was the baby of the group, and people assumed I was because I had looked young, but secretly I'm not that young. <laughs> gotcha. So, Jeremy, you were born in New York? Yeah, I was born in Newburgh, New York, and I grew up there, and I, you know, lived in one house. I pretty much lived there till I was 24. I mean, I went to Berkeley when I was 19. I took a year off um, after high school and then went to Berkeley, and then graduated, like, a semester early, and then took another, like, year off and worked in Midtown at a post-production facility, just, like, in the machine room. You know, getting yelled at, that kind of thing. Actually, actually, it was a really nice place. Like, they were super cool. That it was, it was this company called Clack, and the owner Tom Clack was like, he was like a super British. Like, he was like the most British dude I've ever met, the most English dude I've ever met. He was so polite, and it was, you know, he was so sweet and so, um, so articulate. And he would always like, if he he would probably ask me to do like intern-esque things, maybe like twice. And he was so apologetic about it, even though I was an intern. They, and they, they paid me and they paid for my commute because I was commuting from the country. So it was like, you know, like a 70 mile commute or some, something like that. Wow. Um, and they would pay for that. And they were so sweet. And they'd give me these like amazing lunches every day. But I wanted to, I knew like I wanted to like learn more about composition. Hmm. 
and continue my studies in that area. Right. So when you went to Berkeley, were, were you focusing on guitar? Was it music for film? Um, so right before, so I planned to go there and do a performance major major in guitar. But right when I got there, I started to like sort of have an identity crisis as a guitarist. Like I had been like a metalhead growing up um, and I'd been in a metal band since I was 13. And, you know, that was like what I was all about. But like around 17, I started to like get interested in other styles, but I didn't know, like I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't have the the passion that I had for metal, but I, like I was losing that and I was not sure what was next, you know? Um, so then I got to Berkeley right during this like sort of weird musical identity crisis and I wasn't really a big jazz person. You know, I didn't really study jazz. I mean, I studied a little bit of jazz, but I wasn't like on par with like these kids who'd come in who were, had been shedding jazz like crazy and knew the real book inside and out, you know? And, and so with, at the time, if you didn't know jazz, you couldn't really get placed in a, a good ensemble as a player. So even if you wanted to play like heavy metal, you had to have good ratings. And to get good ratings, you had to play jazz. So I got shitty ratings. And I was also not super like excited about guitar anymore at that period. Um, and then I, my roommate, somehow he, got, he caught wind of the music production and engineering major, which was this really, it was a little bit exclusive. Like you had to get accepted into the program, whereas other programs, I believe you don't, didn't have to get accepted at the time. But it wasn't like grueling to get accepted, you know. I mean, you just had to be fairly decent, <laughs> like you're fairly diligent, you know, school-wise. And so I got into that and I started getting into the technology aspects of it. But I wasn't super passionate about that. But then I also caught wind of the music synthesis department and Richard Boulanger, who's the, a teacher there. And I took a class with him, and it was like super eye-opening, inspiring. And this was like ninety, I think it was ninety-five. So it was like the beginning of people being able to do computer music at home. Before that, you needed like to be in labs or like be at Princeton or somewhere and use these insane supercomputers. But finally, there was like software available for like the average person. And we were kind of the first generation of that. And I remember Richard Boulanger, who went by Dr. B, just giving us these like super inspiring speeches where he'd be like, you are the first generation of composers with these tools. Before you, there were engineers and mathematicians and computer scientists. But you are the composers now, and now you have these tools, and go and make something, and make something beautiful and amazing, you know. And and we, everyone would like leave the class just like running to like you know, couldn't wait to use these tools and create something like you know some opus. I don't I don't think that ever happened. But had you been using synths before that? A little bit, actually. I was in a this industrial metal band that like that was a thing at the time. It was like ninety, I guess that was ninety, um, must be ninety four, when I got into this industrial metal band right after high school. Um, and I got this O&W, I don't even know if you know the synth, the Korg O&W, which no, no one even kn knows about anymore. It was, a it, was like a, it was a ridiculous synth. It, like, it wasn't really an FM synth. It wasn't a, a, a subtractive synth. It wasn't additive. Like, what the hell was it? I don't know. The algorithms were like super obscure and buried and like nothing made sense. But like, you, if you tweak stuff and, and fucked around enough, you'd get something interesting. So we made a whole album with this really weird synth and guitars and like vocals and stuff. Um, so I, even though I didn't really, like I wasn't really understanding this, like the, the sort of basics of synthesis, but I was starting to experiment with sound and I was getting really excited about that. That was sort of the missing link that I forgot to mention. You're reminding me that my, as my identity shifted a little bit away from guitar, I was starting to get into like, you know, sound creation. And so Berkeley just took that and like, ran with it you know there was so much going on there at that time and i think there still is in that area 
I think it was because of I did the Berkeley Five Week in high school, and then that made me that made me a way better guitar player. I came in as a rock mm. person, and then yeah. just like wanted to learn jazz. But I don't think I wanted to learn jazz because I liked the music. It's just because of that exact thing you mentioned. Felt like you should. Yeah, I felt like I was a terrible guitar. Yeah, exactly. Like. <laughs> Right, right. To be like a serious, respected musician, you needed to learn jazz. And that's not a great way to learn jazz. Um, and that was my issue as well at Berkeley. Like, I didn't really love it. I just wanted to learn. Now I love it, you know. And so as a result, I'm actually like, you know, I'm getting, you know, much more comfortable. But um, if you, you know, at the time it was like, it was more like an ego thing, right? To like be able to play over changes. That means you're like a serious badass instead of like actually like loving the sound of it, you know? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, uh, well, you said you were at a post-production house in New York as an intern, and then you ended up at CalArts to study synthesis and tech for music? Yeah, um, it wasn't really tech. I mean, I guess you could call it tech. It was it was composition with new media. So that could have been anything. Like, you know, there were people like building like electronic devices and making sounds with that. Or um, one of the professors there, Mark Trail, he, he, had the, he would do these pieces with like credit card machines where like people would scan their credit cards. I can't believe anyone agreed to this, but people would scan their credit cards and it would parse the data from their credit cards and like do something algorithmically to make music. Um, and so I, yeah, I went there for my master's and I was studying um, composition with uh, Morton Sabotnik, who is the this legend. like very Silver important, apples. yeah, very important figure. Yeah. in electronic music, uh, like modular synthesis and, Cool thing about him was that he wasn't out to make clones of himself. Like we never even touched a modular synth the whole time. Um, it was never that it was never technical in that aspect. It was much more about composition and understanding like what you were going for and do, figuring out a way to do it better. And he was so good with that. Like you know, I remember bringing. I was so intimidated by him, and I remember like feeling like dizzy, like in in his lessons. You know, and lights would get really bright because I was just so anxious. But he was so good like at like finding ways to simplify really difficult concepts. I remember I came in and I, I was doing this very gestural piece with with, vo with extended vocals, process ex extended vocals. And I wanted these like gestures to be like really dynamic and really vibrant and just like, I wanted them to like pop out of the speakers, you know? And they weren't doing that. So I played him this piece and he listened for a little bit. Usually Mort would listen for about 30 to 45 seconds and be like, okay, okay, it's enough, you know? And so he listened for, for I don't know, 40, 40 seconds. And then he was like, okay, okay, um, are you happy with this piece? And I, and I was like, no, no. Like, I, well, I had to think about it for a second, you know, because I was so worried about what he would think. So then I thought about how I felt about it. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not really happy with this piece. And he's like, okay. And he like was really good at understanding, at least what I was going for. Maybe we had similarities and that's why, or maybe he was just good with other students. I don't know. And so he explained to me like very a very simple concept of combining the same shape in different parameters of sound. For example, like I might have a shape that's, you know, like a very fast slope downwards in, um, in pitch, right? Something like that. And so he would, he'd say, what, what other areas of sound can you impose that shape on? You know, you can impose it on the amplitude, the loudness. You can impose it on the density of the sound, you know, as it starts out very dense and then gets sparse at the end. You can impose it on the spatial position. 
you could impose it on the distance. In other words, it's like very dry and then it gets wet as it goes away. You can do all those, you know, impose that shape on all those parameters and watch what happens. And so I went home and I did that and not using anything sophisticated. I was using like Peak. I don't know if you even remember Peak. Peak was a two-channel stereo, pro you know, um, app, like software just for processing like stereo files. It was great, actually. It was freaking awesome. But it was like meant for like mastering or something. Um, and yeah, I like sure enough, like the, the gestures were like flying out of the speakers and like, you know, and and then I just, those kinds of lessons Mort would teach these little nuggets that were so valuable, sort of getting control over big ideas by like realizing that they're actually not so complicated, you know? Yeah. He's an incredible teacher. I think he's still, he's at NYU now, I think. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, he's been there a long time. He's not, he hasn't been at CalArts for a while though. He had like a little, uh, I think he was involved with the, I think he was like one of the people who formed the CalArts music program. Oh, I didn't know that at all. He, yeah. 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 It was really weird getting to study. I went to the, I was at the Steinhardt music tech program for a year at NYU and just seeing that bucle there oh, was cool. the scariest thing, just knowing Morton touched it. And yeah. You, did you get your hands on it? I did. Yeah. It was really, um, I don't think I understood the Maybe I was just falling asleep at the first couple classes, but I I think it would have helped if I understood basic synthesis or at that time, I don't think I'd even like touched a mini Moog or anything. Oh, that's crazy. That's like diving right into like, you know, jumping off a boat into the ocean when you don't know how to swim. <laughs> sure. It's funny because I just got a um, a make noise no coast and now and that's a similar world, I guess, in terms of some mm -hmm. West Coast synth uh, terminology or, or lack of terminology. <laughs> So, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That West Coast synthesis is awesome. I have a Surge, um, hmm. which is the same thing. Surge was actually originated at CalArts by Surge Trepnin. And that was supposed to be like a more affordable alter alternative to Bukla. Gotcha. So, yeah. But it's still expensive as hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The modular synth world is not forgiving on wallets. No. Were there any other types of like, well, I, I think something that's so interesting about your, your musical composition side of things is that you're, you are a sound designer too, and you really take some crazy liberties when it comes to to forming the sound of of your music. Were there any other formative things from CalArts that helped you find your even just like your sound design process or just the way you tackle coming up with new sonic worlds? Well, what's interesting is that at the time I was going to CalArts, right before that, I found I discovered through a friend, same friend that that turned me on to the whole world of sound and engineering and all that stuff. Uh, the composer, Trevor Wishart. And it turned out, so he had written these soft, this suite of software called Composer's De Desktop Project. Um, he, along with uh, Richard Dobson and Archer Endrick, but he was the main guy behind it. And so my friend was using like an Atari Falcon at the time. He didn't have a Mac. And so he, he was like, who, like, who's making stuff for Atari and PC? And they were like, well, you just check out the CDP project. So he did, and it was like super deep. It was like, you know, 200 processes and they were insane. And there was this huge spiral, you know, full, you know, manual. And, and so we were like, all right, Trevor Wishart's name is on all these things. What's this guy all about? And it turns out he had a piece called Tongues of Fire and we, or, he ordered it and he's like, he, he listened to it and he calls me up. He's like, dude, you got to come over and you have to hear this piece. So I came over and it was the crazy, I had never heard anything like it. And I still haven't, honestly, like. I mean, he's continued to write pieces, wish art, and they're incredible. But it was so sophisticated and so like 
well-formed, like compositionally and conceptually, um, and so like well-executed. So then it turns out this guy wrote a book called On Sonic Art. And so I bought the book and I was st studying the book at the same time I was going to CalArts. And those two things together, because the book goes into great detail about a lot of different pro like techniques uh, of, and just sort of the understanding of sound, but it, it's not specific. In other words, you don't need like that software to apply these applications. It's like, once you understand these, these ideas in the book, you can apply them with any software. Uh, it doesn't matter because you have a deeper understanding. So I was reading this stuff at the same time. And like, I remember like teachers used to, like a teacher, Mark, like Mark Trail I mentioned earlier, who would make fun of me because I was so obsessed with this book. And it was like my Bible and I'd walk around with it every day, like yelling at people to read it and stuff. And everyone ignored me, <laughs> you know, people still, I think people still haven't read, you know what I mean? They're like, whatever, dude. But it had a really profound impact on me as a composer. And at the time, I thought I had to like make a choice between like Sonic. He, he called, Trevor Wishart calls it Sonic Art, which just sort of eschews like all the traditional aspects so that you can move on to this other form of, of composition. And he called it Sonic Art because other composers gave him shit for calling it music. But it's totally music. You know, it's crazy to not to. And now I think people wouldn't have a problem calling it music so much. But even so, even now, it's probably pretty out there, pretty non, uh, pretty inaccessible to some people, or it's a little bit, little bit of a leap. Like some people might say it's like sound effects or something, but, um, fuck, I got totally derailed. What was I saying before that? <laughs> so I was going to make a point about the book. It was amazing. It blew my mind and it, oh, oh, so I thought I had to make a choice between sonic art and traditional music, but I realized that I could apply these same concepts to, tr to traditional music. And that sort of like gave me a little bit of my own voice and allowed me to like look at things a little differently when I was scoring stuff, even doing like pretty mainstream projects, you know, like finding another, another way of looking at something instead of thinking so much in terms of harmony and melody, allowing other aspects of sound to be equally important and maybe drive an idea. But they're, but you know, but they're like within the framework of traditional music. So it's not, so people don't necessarily have to hear that. Maybe it just comes across as something sounding a little bit unique, but not like, what the hell is that, you know? For sure. So I guess while you're still at CalArts, you and your friend Ben got the Avatar Last Airbender gig. Yeah. Can you talk about how that happened? Totally. So, you know, it's um very, very much this business. It's all about who you know and your friends. And obviously, you know, what do they say? Like, what is it? It's... uh luck combined with preparedness opportunity is luck with you know preparedness or something like that um although i don't know about preparedness Rose, but we were we were at CalArts, um and ben's roommate was brian konitsko who's the co-creator of avatar and brian was in the process of i i think he had just pitched it to nickelodeon i think they were really excited about it i i, I think in the pitch meeting they were they were greenlit it i'm pretty sure um it was like we're doing this so he was like, hey, I'm making this show. I'd love for you guys to do the music and the sound design. And at the time, Ben and I were very much about this idea of like sound design and music being one thing. And we had this concept of like doing something where you don't have, a, there's no separation between, between sound design and music. It was a really nice idea. Of course, it didn't work at all, <laughs> but it was a great idea. So that was our idea for Brian and Brian loved the idea. And so he like wanted us both to come in, even though like Brian had heard us do all our weird stuff at CalArts. He had never heard us do anything traditional and he was excited about that. But as we started to like very early into the process of, of Avatar, we realized that it was going to need 
more of like a sort of traditional epic score with like an orchestra and you know definitely some other colors and you know some some definitely some instruments from other other cultures as well i mean that was big like brian really wanted us to the original idea was us to use no western instrumentation and use only in, eastern instrumentation but approach the the instruments like with minimal knowledge of their traditional use so just almost more exploratory like what does this sound do like if i grab a gujin and i like you know snap the string is that a useful sound you know what if i like take a, a bow and bow it or pick scrape across it or you know what i mean or like resonate it somehow with something with something and that was a cool idea but of, but it was it was a really ambitious idea and one i don't think we had enough instruments two i don't think we had enough time or confidence to explore that fully um and we were under a lot of scrutiny from nickelodeon because it was they knew we were newbies you know and three i think it just like it really did want that it wanted some degree of the lexicon that's already been established of like epic scores so that was like the the idea that's how the score sort of became to be so ben was doing sort of quickly we realized that we didn't have t enough time to do both like both of us do sound design and music and i was sort of better suited to do the music for this especially with this traditional basis and he was better suited to do the sound design and we just we divided the roles and that was it so really we did the music together for the there was a pencil test and for the um the 11 minute pilot that you can see like with i think it's included in the book one box set or something but it never aired um and then after that though like it was divided duties ben did sound design and i did music and we would definitely you know confer and like team together and ask each other for our ideas and opinions but that was pretty much how it worked gotcha was that a natural progression did you want ever want to like dip into the sound design world even while you were writing or or vice versa did ben want to get into the composition side of things that's a really good question um i'd be curious to hear what ben would have to say about that from his perspective i think like we were so i think we were feeling a lot of pressure you know because it was a, it was our first gig and we weren't super experienced. We had done commercials and things, but nothing long form like that. And although like now looking back, like we had a lot of, like the schedule was luxurious. Like I think it was usually about two weeks per episode, which is incredible. At the time it felt insane. Like it felt like we were working seven days a week, all day long, you know, is this work, does this work? Like just trying to figure it out. And I think we were so busy trying to figure it out. We didn't really have the time or the space to like sort of wish we were doing the others task you know what i mean I, I, I think maybe looking back there's a little bit of that but you know i, I feel pretty content about like how things went and i, I think he does too i mean you know i, I started rewatching it with my kids after you know i hadn't seen it since and there's definitely times where i'm cringing like a lot <laughs> over my own work but there are some nice moments for sure and then i'm i'm actually really impressed by ben's sound design like at the time i was just so like focused on trying to get done what i was doing you know yeah i mean the music and the sound design really as much as you said the experiment didn't work out as you might have initially thought it it really does blend well together oh that's it feels cool. very cohesive that's that's very cool to hear yeah but, yeah I'm, I'm really happy to hear that actually maybe maybe that mindset did sort of exist somehow even though we didn't talk about it so much like because we did spend a lot of time in the beginning discussing that that idea yeah and one thing that blew me away it just uh watching it back the other day was the Sungi horn and just uh, reading about it. So it was a duduk where you took a convolution reverb of a trombone or vice versa. Exactly. It was a duduk and we took a bell, the bell of a trombone, 
just hit it with something, grab the little tiny snippet of that sound and convolve. I, I, I recorded a performance of the Duduk, the, the whole, you know, Sungi, the whole thing you hear now, and then convolve that entire performance with this impulse of the trombone bell to give it a more of a brass timbre. And it worked, which was exciting, you know? So that's an example of like something actually I picked up at, at um, Berkeley, that convolution using SoundHack, Tom Herb's SoundHack software, which is free, it's still around. Non-real-time synthesis stuff. Wow. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it's just amazing that, I mean, you, I'm sure you could have easily just used the Duduk, but just that extra element there really made it feel unique. Well, thanks. I think a lot of that was, I wouldn't be surprised if, like Brian had great ideas, Brian and Mike. Brian was a little more involved in the music and he, there was a lot of references that he would give. And I wouldn't be su surprised if Brian was like, we need to create a sound that's like, you know, brassy, but has a reed or something, mm. you know? Cause I think the instrument has, I think it has a reed if I remember correctly, but it also has this big brass bell. So, you know, or he might've just said, try to make an instrument that sounds like that, you know? Right. And also, so to go back to your point about like taking instruments from the Eastern world, uh, you talked about like, taking the Gujang and just experimenting with it in different ways, but I know you do play pretty, pretty well. Oh, thanks. Did you use that instrument before or did you use any of the, like the Duduk? I, I think you said you bought one at a pawn shop. <laughs> yeah, you did your homework. Yeah, I hadn't, um, I mean, this is one of the things about being young and not knowing enough to, to realize things are like insane. And also the confidence like Brian and Mike would instill. But yeah, I remember like Brian wanted a Duduk in an episode for the Blue Spirit. He wanted that to be like his thematic instrument. And he's like, yeah, I think a Duduk would be great. And like at the time I had like no relationship with like LA musicians, didn't really understand like hiring people. I don't even think I had a studio to record anyway. Like it, it would have been like my little no weird room. And so, yeah, I, I went online and, and duduk.com was the website and it was a pawn shop. Like I go to Glendale and sure, like I thought, think I'm in the wrong place, but, and then I'm like, Hey, uh, do you sell duduks? And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Come on. And like goes to the back room and like grabs a duduk, wails on it for a second and then sells it to me. And, um, yeah, man, I just, I, I don't know. I like forced it to work. So I don't, I don't know if I could do that now. I don't know how that worked, but I think I got lucky and the reed was great because sometimes these reeds are really fussy, you know, They're, they can be really hard to play, but it just, it, it was a, it's actually a really nice duduk. And your first, first, second instrument was sax, right? That's true. Yes. So I think that probably really helped. Yeah. I never even thought about that. I think I was, you know, but you're totally right. And like, I went online and looked at some tutorials and like, I think it's really like, it's about like having the right emotion and intention. You know what I mean? If you have the right emotion and intention, it's amazing what you can get away with. Hmm. You know, if you just like really feel it. And I think I just, I didn't have to do anything virtuosic, you know, I just had to like get a certain vibrato and like sort of get into the scene, you know? And uh, yeah, so I played, dude, I, I barely touched it since, you know, I probably can't play it anymore. And then I took lessons on Gujin and Pipa for a couple of years. Um, the first time I used it, I didn't know anything like the Cave of Two Lovers, I think is, I think that's the first time I used the Gujin on the series. And I was, I just was listening to some, you know, listening to some Gujin music and tried to sort of emulate what they were doing. And like, honestly, I think my background in sonic art really helped because it, it helped me like listen to other facets than the, the, the actual pitch, like the melodic content, which was important, but it, mm. You know, in Chinese music, there's a lot more going on than just a melody. You know what I mean? There's, there's, I think in a lot of ways, Chinese music is a lot more like sonic art 
than than West than like traditional Western music. Um, or sonic art's a lot like Chinese music, maybe, you know, because there's all it's like it's off the grid. You know, it's like tempo wise, it's off the grid. Pitch wise, it's off the grid. There's a lot that happens after a note is initiated. There's a lot of detail and vibrato. It's not just like set it and forget it. You know, things are modulating all over the place. Not not necessarily harmonically modulating. I mean, like like what synthesis modulation. You know, speaking using the the, the definition that you would use in synthesis or the meaning you would use in synthesis. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was crazy. That was a crazy period. It was like you know, being young and having the energy to like go all into something, like putting 100% of yourself into it. Yeah. And I mean, even that type of energy comes in through the uh, the theme song too, which I'd be curious to ask you about what that writing process was like. I very well might have been just the TV thing of like, oh yeah, first idea, let's just go. <laughs> but Yeah. Like, so like, uh, da, 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 that thing that was written in Ben and Brian's house while we were doing the pilot and we we're trying to come up with a theme for Aang. And I played that on, you know, I played it on like a French horn patch or whatever. And Brian was in the other room, like doing art, you know, creating character, doing character design and stuff. And he's like, that's it. That's good. I was like, oh yeah. He's like, yeah. I was like, cool, man. And so that was, the, that's how that theme came about. And then the other theme, da, 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 da. Um, I have to really think back, but I think that was just came very quickly as well. That wasn't in front of Brian that, cause I had, I think I wrote that later for the, for the opening, you know, main title, but that just, it just felt so avatar, you know, it was just one of those things. It, it, it didn't take a lot of, um, experimentation or back and forth. And in fact, like, I think the main title you, that's, that made it is the first, was the first pass. I don't think there were revisions. Um, if there were revisions, they weren't major. It wasn't like starting over. I don't like that idea, you know? Right. So I, I guess most of that too, just because of the timing and everything was MIDI instruments, but you're using like hammered dulcimers, I think, and there and other instruments outside of like the traditional totally. orchestral palette. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Um, what do we use? We use dulcimers, which was a MIDI instrument, doombecks, um, djembe's, what else? There was a wide range of like MIDI stuff, but the percussion was real. Like, so there was a, you know, like the Duduk, things like that were real. So I would record stuff, bead drums, you know, the things that you, you know, those bead drums, um, a lot of percussion, some, some cheap Dietze flutes, you know, um, they would, they, they're supposed to have a membrane on them. I didn't know that at the time. The membrane gives them this, um, gives them that buzzy sound, the Chinese, you know, flute, Dietze. So, the DC you hear is a little bit more like a recorder or something sounding an avatar because, you know, I think I had like, like gaff tape over the, the area, the hole that you're supposed to put the, this thin membrane, but what else? Uh, yeah. Pipa, Gujin, these, uh, a lot of Chinese stuff, but yeah, there were some other cultures. I didn't go as deeply, deeply into those, the music of those other cultures though. I think I was like, I think I, I, I had more than enough to like learn just from like a few Chinese instruments. And I think I think as the series goes on, I use less, I use fewer instruments, you know, and I sort of hone in a little bit more, if I, if I remember correctly. I think it's also because I stopped, I started using le like fewer um, MIDI instruments, aside from all the orchestral stuff that was all MIDI. But right, well, it seems like too that some themes were established soon on, and then you guys got to repurpose. Yeah, that. exactly. And uh, that that was another funny thing is I knew nothing about like repurposing. 
like to save time or like working from splits or something. So like every episode was like reinventing the wheel. Like, I don't know. I don't think I would ever bring something in from a pre exam I would just sort of recreate stuff. It was ridiculous. The amount of extra work, you know, because I, I thought I was creating like, I always had in my mind, like every episode was a fresh score. But now that I'm rewatching it, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like reusing like themes constantly. Why the hell did I not just like bring this in, change the tempo, transpose it, whatever, you know, like, why was I like recreating all, you know, what I, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that adds something too, because it's true that like you'll hear the same theme and it's the same exact recording, but I think there's some magic there. Yeah. I guess, you know, like another layer of small details that come in when you're recreating something specifically for a scene instead of bringing in splits and throwing it against a scene and like sort of like letting it be like 95% right, you know? Right. Yeah. And another thing that I think I heard you talk about in an interview was this idea of not assigning musical instruments from certain cultures for like just like the bad guys in the show or something like that. And I, I really admired that because I think it's very often that for me, it was like this huge bummer whenever I would see a movie where uh, like a Jackie Chan movie, and then you hear a shakuhachi flute. Totally. And I know those cliches are the worst. And that was something we talked about right away. I think Brian, I don't remember who's, who's conversa- who started the conversation, but we were all like, oh, hell yes. Like, we are not going to be like, oh, all right, the evil guy, like the Duduk is for the bad guy. Like, yeah, like Zuko was like kind of a bad guy, but the Duduk was like him evolving. You know what I mean? Him becoming getting in touch with this other part of his personality, re- realizing the true him, which was a good person. And as well as, you know, Uncle Iroh's theme was also Duduk, the Tsungi horn, which was processed Duduk. And it's sort of like that that path, you know, like Uncle Iroh's helped Zuko become a realized person, you know, and find his identity as a good person. So yeah, it was really important to like, not al- not allow these like cliches. I mean, that being said, we definitely use a lot of Taiko for action and, you know, that's a pretty tropey thing, but also Taiko is just such a great, great sounding percussion thing for like heavy, powerful, massive, you know, action. Right. And it has kind of become synonymous with, for lack of a better word, the epic orchestral toolkit. I mean, to the point where it's time to like retire it probably. <laughs> it just works so damn well. But there's also Dagu, um, which is the Chinese sort of a, a similar instrument, but, uh, but it's Chinese. Um, Dagu, there's a, several drums within Dagu, um, and they, they have different patterns and they're a little different, but they, they're similar to Taiko. Taiko probably comes from Dagu and, you know, where they hit the skin and the sides and the rims and, right. but the, 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 the ideas are a little bit different and like the way the, um, the patterns are structured are a bit different than Taiko and the sound, you know, but it's very similar. For sure. Yeah. And it's interesting with that type of drumming that there's just so much uh, possibility in terms of, I don't know, I guess I don't see too many people hit floor toms and, and go for the rims. Yeah, and, and like, it seems like that'd be very a very cool thing to do, you know, or doing like a marching band, you know, using marching band to score an action scene. Like, I mean, percussion, you know, drum corps or something. Um, mm, you know, right. there's all kinds of other things to explore. I think, yeah, I think people got a little bit complacent with Taiko. You know, <laughs> well, what do you uh, suggest as the new replacement? Oh, jeez. Um, I don't know. You know, I'd have to figure that out next time I do something like that. But uh, like I was saying, I, I I do like the idea of using like a drum corps or something, 
but also like like makeshift stuff you know like building things making weird things um found objects you know or um yeah like using bass drums but playing them non-traditionally you know using other kinds of mallets or preparing them in some way doing something to the drum heads you know what i mean playing the sides more i mean it's still very taiko-esque you know well, something I got from you is this, or just like in terms of the idea of the convolving of one instrument on another, is when I get my acoustic guitar back, I think I'm just going to start recording some slaps and hits on it and then convolve it with some taiko hits awesome. or something and just see see if it works. Yeah, the trick is with that stuff, um, convolution, the effect, the result is super, varies, varies in a big way depending on how long the impulse is. So the impulse is the sound that you're convolving, you're imposing on your source, right? So your source could be, you know, a guitar performance or the or, or in Avatar's case, the Duduk performance. And the impulse, so the source is the Duduk, the impulse with the, was the trombone bell, right? And we had to find the, the perfect duration, which was extremely short. If it's too long, it's it's really washy and reverby sounding. It essentially becomes a reverb, right? Like a colored reverb. Um, and that's why like, you know, you get these impulses for uh, like altiverb and these other convolution reverbs. The, the impulses are long, but if you if you use an extremely short impulse, you actually wind up just imposing the timbre uh, on top of the source, um, and it's a it's a completely different uh, effect. Right, that's a good point. Something else keep in yeah. keep in mind when doing this. And then I do want to talk a bit about Horse Girl too for Netflix. Cool. Yeah, uh, lots of synths. It's a really cool, exciting score. Curious about how that uh, well one how it came about and two what the process was like. Thank, yeah, that, I, I, I loved that project. That was such a, such a great project. Um, so my friend, Mylise, who's a brilliant um, sonic artist, she does stuff with plants, with sensors on plants, and they send out data to algorithms that she's created to perform in SuperCollider, which is software, um, to, to manipulate synthesis and make choices based on the voltage coming from the plants. And I've done a little bit of work with Mylise over the years, and she's awesome. So she became friends with the director, Jeff Baina. And Jeff told her he was looking for a composer. And so she recommended me. And uh, that night, you know, I went over to Jeff's house and watched the, the cut of Horse Girl and told him I loved it and let's do this, you know. And he hadn't even heard my music. We just had a great conversation and we got along really well. And Jeff's thing as a director is all about like chemistry and like, I think like trusting his gut. You know, so like he does a lot of stuff with improvisation um, and he gets a cast together that's going to have a very cool chemistry and going to be able to just be natural. So the dialogue, his dialogue is incredible because it's like improvised, hmm. you know, so it's, it feels very real. Um, so anyway, so Jeff, Jeff and I hit it off and that was cool. And then Jeff asked if I'd be willing to work with this composer, Josiah Steinbrick. And Josiah, I had never worked with him before and I didn't even know him. Um, and he's like from a very different world. Like he works with Devendra uh, Bernhardt. And uh, he's played a lot, a lot of bands, you know, and he's, he doesn't read, I believe he doesn't read music. So he, but he's like got this incredible like musicality from doing it, you know, like praxis versus, you know, theory. He's all like, he's like praxis, you know, it's, it's badass. Um, so we got together. I was like, I'm, I'm down. I mean, I just want to work on this film. So I, I'm sure this guy, if you say this guy's cool, I'm sure he's cool. So we met. 
And, you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to go because we we're from such different worlds, but uh, we got together and we got in a room and we just started working and it was, it was really great. He brought his Juno 106 uh, and his uh, Eventide, uh, one of the early ones, I think H3000. No, is that an early one? H3000? That was like one of the earliest rack processors. Yeah. 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 Super noisy. Like, <laughs> and we hooked it up and we had my surge and my shit. And then we were working, and then and then Jeff wound up spending probably like eighty percent of the process with us in the in my studio, the three of us just working. It was wild. Like I never composed with a director, like being such a significant part of the process. And at first, I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be a fucking nightmare." Like having the the, the director there, but it turned out to be awesome. Um, I loved it. Like it was just like it was like a band, you know. It was like we were making a record. It really felt like we were making a record. Um, and the director, Jeff, had, like, great ideas. He he knows, like, he's he knows music. Like, he's, as a listener, you know, he's, like, an avid listener and super sophisticated. So his references were awesome. And we just, it was, like, great chemistry, you know? It, it, like, it was, I guess that's one of the magical things about Jeff. He somehow knew that it was going to be amazing, even though he had just met me. And he had worked with Josiah on um, his film called Joshi. Josiah and Devendra and a couple other people worked on that film. So yeah, it was freaking great, man. So and uh, Allison Brie was was part of it. Like she she came over for a couple of days and recorded vocals for the last cue. She was super fun and like brilliant, and she had some really great ideas. You know, because she watched all the all the cues through with us and had some really like excellent ideas. And it was one of these things where like it could have been like too many cooks in the kitchen, but it wasn't like that at all. It was just like we never would have been able to create. Like any one of us separately never would have been able to do what we did as a unit. Seems like the casting worked out well then. <laughs> exactly. I keep, that's what he said. He's like, I'm casting everything. Like, when I, like everything is casting, you know? And uh, yeah, it was cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I'm just going to move on to the uh, final segment for the, the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> Oh shit! All right, I feel like I've already done that. Uh oh. Yeah. No. <laughs> Sorry. I've, have I been too techy? No, I think. I feel like I've been too techy. Well, I, I think the interesting thing about your tech process is how it translates to other to other aspects of life too. Cool. Or composition. But now this is going to be very boring. Uh, <laughs> Let's do it. Let's get nerdy. First one is DAW. Okay, Cubase. Nice. Any like favorite features? Oh man, it's funny. Like I have such a, I feel like I'm so clunky with it. So I switched, I, I was a Logic user. I started using Logic in 97 and I switched to Cubase probably like three years ago. Um, and I still feel pretty clunky with it, but like, I love it. Like I love, you know, that, that info strip up top, you can select a, you know, like I love manually inputting stuff. That see, if you want to get nerdy, I just said manually inputting stuff. That is fucking nerdy. So you select a region you know, and then, you you know, you can get super specific with like, whatever, amplitude or something. I love that. Um, uh, what else? I, I love that how, how easy it is to like conform a session, like to new time code. Like it's super easy to change time code, whereas logic it always felt really difficult or like the hit point. Like I love, I can't remember what the tool is, but when you, you can, you can very, very easily like drag a measure point to a marker and it'll, it'll instantly like change the tempo right yeah you know and then if if you like enable whatever that thing is called in the in the audio pool like all the audio will conform to that new tempo and if it's not too different you won't really notice it you know even if it's just for a rough sketch or something it's super fast I'm trying to think like what macros i use even just muting like dialogue and effect sound effects like i have a like an f key 
a function key and I just hit that and like, you know, so I can quickly mute or unmute dialogue and uh, with one key, you know. The exporting features are awesome. You can get super specific, like if you want to send your mixer everything, reverb separately, you know, you as long as you have it routed so that nothing is sharing a reverb, you could get, or an effect, a, a bus, you could get super, you could send a mixer like every element and they can have complete control. For sure. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a tool, you know, it's like, it shouldn't really affect your compositional process. You know, I've always felt like, like that's always been my problem with MIDI. MIDI affects your compositional process. And I really hate that. Like, I, I really resent that about MIDI. Like, certain things just don't sound good with MIDI, right? Like, even going back when, like, before there was all these libraries with good round robin. So, like, if you listen to Avatar, like, Ostinatos, they, I don't think they ever have the same note twice in a row. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's always moving around because, like, I had shitty round, like, a lot of my libraries didn't have round robin. So, it would have that machine gun effect if I would use the same note twice in a row. So, so yeah, that, anyway, I've sort of went off topic, but like, I, I don't think you're, you know, ideally your DAW isn't really affecting your compositional ideas and it isn't hindering you in any way, you know, compositionally. Sure. Uh, next we have electric guitar. I've got a lot of guitars. My favorite is probably this 1951 Telecaster. It's uh, interesting. Okay. I thought that Gibson yeah. was your favorite for some reason. I love that too, but it's not, I don't think... I don't know if it's my favorite. I don't use it the most, but I love it. That 335? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another one. That's a 68 335. Whoa. The, the Telecaster it, um, was stripped of its paint, and it didn't have the original electronics. So it was like, you know, probably a third of what it would have cost if it was all original. But it sounds incredible. It's just like, you know, it's ridiculous. It's got so much magic to it. But, I, you know, I also have like a, a parts strat. I just got like a hardtail. That was a fraction of the price. That's incredible, you know. So you don't have to spend a ton of money to get a great instrument. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it changes all the time. Honestly, I have a, I have this guitar that um, Gilbert Chavez made for me, and it's a multi scale. You know, so on the on the bottom on the bass, it's uh, twenty five and a half inches from the Seattle. I mean, Seattle <laughs> from the saddle <laughs> to the to the nut, <laughs> and then on the treble side, it's twenty five inches. So it, so it's a little shorter. So it it's easier to bend. There's less tension up high. And so the frets are like angled a little, a little bit, but you don't notice it at all when you play. And it's it's a very like super balanced sounding guitar. And I'm realizing it's actually a really great jazz guitar, even though it's like not traditional. Cool. Next I have Amp or Amp Sims. Okay. Um, amp, uh, I have a, a vintage uh, Vibrolux that I don't use enough because it's loud, but I love it. And then I have an old, like a silver face VibroChamp that I use a bit more uh, and it sounds great. And it's like 77, which isn't like one of the revered periods, but screw that. Like it sounds incredible, you know? It's another case of like sort of ignoring what people say about, you know, these are the periods where Fender was making amazing stuff and these weren't. Like you just got to take it case by case. That It's a great app. Got it for like 200 bucks or something. Whoa. Um, it sounds incredible, you know? And then, uh, then I use a Kemper, which is like awesome for recording. I mean, it doesn't feel the same as a live amp at all, like a real amp, but it's like, once it's recorded, uh, it's pretty indistingu indistingu indistinguishable, you know? And like, as far as like recall, like bringing stuff back up, you know, let's say you want to overdub something a couple of days later, you know, you just bring up the, the profile and you go, you know, it's so much more practical. Yeah, I kind of hate how much I love the Kempers. I know what you mean. Like, I kind of resent them. 
but also I'm really thankful for them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Super Collider. Now that is nerdy. So that is a text-based audio programming language that I've been using since CalArts. So I started using it in like 2000, I guess like 2000. Yeah, or 99 maybe. Um, and I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And I would just sort of like go into the tutorials and like tweak values and like play with stuff until like I got something I liked. And, but I kept messing around with it and it took about four years. So I wouldn't mess around all day, obviously. Just like I'd get into it for a couple of days, ignore it for a month, get into it for a couple of days, you know. Um, but it took about four years and then suddenly like a light bulb went off and like suddenly I kind of understood it. And so that's kind of like my secret weapon. Like I've done a lot of probably my more unique sounding stuff with Super Collider. It's great for generative stuff, um, for building systems. But honestly, it can do anything. Like I've, I've like, I used it as a time code calculator one day to figure out, like I, f I used it to figure out how to do time code math in Google Docs. So first I, I prototyped it in Super Collider to figure out the math and the concept. And then I like, then I was able to, from there, do it in Google Docs. Um, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've balanced my checkbook with it. <laughs> But it's freaking insane. Like, that's what my Elise uses um, to parse plant data for her algorithmic composition. So, it, but it can do synthesis, and the synthesis sounds really good. It's great for generating like a ton of data, like very efficiently. It's real time and it's super efficient. It's incredible, but it is text based and it doesn't really like, it's like really very much in its own world. So, it's not like Max where you can bring it up in your DAW and, and like very easily. Go, go back, you know, pass audio back and forth. It's a lot, it's a lot more difficult than that. I mean, you could, you could send audio like using Soundflower or something um, back and forth from the DAW, and that's what I do. Um, and I, you could send MIDI back and forth using the IAC bus or something, IAC bus. But um, it's really its own world. But that's also why I love it. Like, it's, there are no, no one's imposing on you what they think is important musically. And honestly, that's always why I've loved it. Like, it's so easy to, completely go off the grid. Like I've talked about the grid before. The grid concept is something I got from reading Wish Art on Sonic Art and the idea of, you know, equal tempered scales and permutative rhythms and those kinds of things. You know, it's all on a grid. It all, it's very easy to, to understand mathematically. Very easy to like notate, you know, and like quantify. But if you want to go, go out of that world, it's super easy to do with Super Collider. And that's what, that's what I love about it. You know, it's just like, you can just imagine, like you just let your imagination go wild. And once your chops are at a certain level on it, you can realize it. It's super powerful. Great. Well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Uh, don't tell the people you've got going on. Um, yeah. I'm, oh, I don't know. Can I say any of this stuff? <laughs> okay. Well, at six o'clock, I'm going to be eating dinner with my family. Probably going to procrastinate for a while. And then I'm going to watch some Netflix. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get out a couple uh, soundtracks, o o OSTs. Working on that. A couple other ideas. I've got a, potentially another like nature show coming up at some point, and hopefully another series. Um, I just finished this show called The Playbook for Netflix. It's a docu series. Uh, it has a lot of heart. I really like it. I really love it. It's um, it's five episodes. E each episode covers a different sports coach, like a famous uh, sports coach. And you really get inside their head, like what makes them tick, you know, their philosophies, um, their things they've done right, things they've done wrong, things they've, that has inspired them or like 
you know, so you really don't have to be into sports. Like I am not, I'm not a sports guy at all. And I told the showrunner that like before I had the gig, I'm like, I don't know why I told him that. I was so dumb. But I was like, I really, I don't know. I didn't, I don't know how, I don't know how I got the gig, but I was just like, yeah, I'm, I am not a sports guy. I think, oh, I think I, I think I told him because I'd watched the pilot and I was like, I'm not a sports guy at all, but I really found it interesting. You know, I really was, found it compelling. So anyway, like you don't have to be a sports person to enjoy it. Um, and musically it was interesting. Like it was, each episode is very different. Like there's some like sort of soul, some funk. Then there's some like, there's a lot of string quartet stuff. There's a, there's a pretty good deal of electronic stuff. You know, I mean, it's like, it's from that world. It's it's from the lexicon of like documentary, electro, you know, electronic, like it's very supportive. You know, it's, some of it can be, you know, extremely supportive. Like it's, there's music throughout the whole episode, which I don't really love like wall to wall music. Like I feel like music loses its impact, you know, when it's wall to wall and it kind of becomes a little bit of a, a drone. But I think they did a good job of like, keeping things moving and changing enough that hopefully that doesn't happen. And it was, a, it was quite a challenge to like figure out how to keep things interesting. And, you know, when you're dealing with wall to wall music, you have to like think about like, okay, this, this cue is in this key, this cue is in this key. Oh, they just completely changed the episode. Now each episode had usually between four and six different cuts and they would completely rearrange scenes cause it's a documentary, you know? So I was like, oh, that used to work next to that. But now that sounds awful. Like that's, you know, that's not even like, cool awful you know um so that was actually one of the challenges for that well that's why you gotta write every single cue in one key for a movie i know i know like why do i never do this like one tempo one cue done you know but yeah so that was that was a that was an interesting challenge for that project actually just that technical aspect of like dealing with just simply keys of cues you know um and tempos but anyway yeah so that that's the playbook super super fun um I hope people check it out. I think it's coming out at the end of uh, August. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see what's next, you know. Just hustling, hustling. Yes. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being on, Jeremy. It's a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That was super fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.